Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. What you doing? I'm recording a podcast with a cat in my lap. Really? Yeah. Who are you recording a podcast for? The Sausage of Science. Oh, right, right, right. So I'm involved in that too, right? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Are you? Uh, today, it's hard to say. <laughs> but no, I, I, I do jest. Um, we have a special guest. As listeners know, we often have visitors to our campuses. And when they are in town, we'd like to take advantage of the opportunity to do in-person Sausage of Science interviews with them. And today we have Professor Tanya Lurman from Stanford University in the Other Whisper booth. Hey, Tanya. Hello. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. How's the rain here in Alabama treating you? Oh, I love it. I'm a rain tourist. It never rains enough in California. It hasn't oh. rained since January. Just wow. for you, we made it rain nonstop for the last month. Yes. My goodness. Well, if you want to come north, we're about to get 8 to 12 inches of snow. I just think that the East Coast should kind of blow in, my, in our direction. <laughs> if only. So we always start these podcasts in, in the exact same way. And that is to start with a question about how you became an anthropologist and kind of what your origin story is and how you kind of decided to choose this as an actual career. So do you want a, sh a long answer or a short answer? We'd it's like completely up to you. Chris, <laughs> like, whatever. I like a long answer. Okay. Well, I like to say that I chose my topic uh, because, probably, because I came from a family of spiritual mutts. So my mother is was the daughter of a Baptist pastor. Hmm. All my um, cousins are pretty committed conservative Christians, and my, my my mother became the black sheep of the family. And my father was born in a Christian science household. And you probably know that Christian science is a world in which you do not traffic with doctors. And my father went to medical school. And so I, and we lived in an, in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. And I was a Shabbos Goy. Hmm. I grew up amongst all these good, wise people with very different understandings of what was ultimately real. And so the question of how people understand what's real and make what's real for them became a focus for me. I almost became a psychiatrist, but then I decided that anthropology was really more about book writing, that I would be, the advantage of psychiatry was that I would never lose track of the difference between people, the differences in the way that people thought. And that was the appeal to me of psychiatry. And I was drawn by clinical work, but I really wanted to be a book writer. And I mm. thought that anthropology would give me the context to do that. So if I remember correctly, you're, are you from, you from New York? Yeah. Okay. New York, East Coast, I mean, New Jersey. Okay. So as a 20 year long New Yorker, I, I learned after growing up in Indiana, I wouldn't have known what a Shabbos Goy is, but after living in New York, <laughs> that's the person, the, the non-Jewish person who turns on the lights and, and operates technology and does things that Orthodox Jewish folks are not allowed to do on Shabbat. So. Yeah. And so I ended up, going over to people's houses on a Friday evening and I would turn on the lights and I'd turn off the oven and I'd turn on the electric disposal switch. And I think one of the reasons that experience really spoke to me is because I understood on some, I, I understood that if you were an Orthodox Jew, the, the commitment you made to God was the commitment to follow the commandments, the mitzvot or the rules and that it was the individual's willingness to follow the rules that was the 
enactment of the bond with God. And of course, my Baptist-raised mother had a very different understanding of what that commitment was like. I mean, she had a model of internal intention and a God who could really scrutinize your own choices. And so to my mother, this business of being a Shabbos Goy was a fiddle. It was a way of sort of, I'm putting words into her mouth, but (laughs) it was a kind of a cheat that was like playing a game on God. But of course it wasn't within a Judaic context. And so that also I found quite compelling. Here was this woman who didn't really believe in God, my mother, um, and yet whose model of who God, God was, was such that these little managements, the rules, she didn't know quite what to make of that. And I was intrigued by that because what a Jewish God demands of his people is different from what a Christian God demands of his people. And I recognized that enough when I was young to be fascinated. What's your mom think of your work? Oh, my mom loved it. I mean, she's not with us anymore, but mm. she, you know, she's a contradictory, complicated person. She did not believe in God, and she, but she always went to church, and she died surrounded by books on faith. Mm. She loved Sam Harris. <laughs> the next question I have, really, you sort of answered with just indicating your interests, but I'll just spell it out because you've written several fascinating books. Uh, your work extends from witchcraft, uh, persu- persuasions of the witch's craft, to Indian post-colonial elite. That one was one I, I wasn't familiar with, the good Parsi, mm-hmm. to psychiatric training in the U.S. of two minds, to talking to God when God talks back, which is the work you were doing when I first learned of your work and, and have been following you ever since that and have backtracked. And then to schizophrenia, our most troubling madness. Mm-hmm. And so I guess just to maybe explicitly ask you, what led you to these respective areas of research and what connects them? So these days I describe myself as an anthropologist of the human relationship with invisible others. Hmm. I saw that people in religious domains create these relationships. I mean, I'm agnostic about the ultimate source of those relationships, but I think of myself is trying to look at the way people work to make them compelling and vivid and alive for themselves. And I'm interested in the other side of that story. I mean, one of the things I saw when these different religious domains is that people have cool, weird experiences. They see things other people don't. They hear things other people don't. They feel the presence of something nobody else can see. And you can ask, oh, is that crazy? And so I became interested in the scientific debates about what these experiences are, where they come from, whether there's one pathway or many to having them, whether some people are just a little less crazy than others. And so those questions, as they've unfolded, have led me forward. So, you know, the, the, the magic project was, you know, why do apparently reasonable people believe in apparently unreasonable beliefs? And I realized that there, this was partly a story about experience and practice rather than a story about ideas and cognitive models that people come to feel the magic in their body. And then that led me off into a study of Zoroastrianism and the attempt to revive an ancient faith. And um, the impulse behind that project was trying to figure out how people made that Ahura Mazda feel vividly present 
And then I became curious about what we know about these events in the body and how, where they come from. And that led me into psychiatry. And then for the last 20 years, I've been running sort of simultaneously projects on psychosis, where people have thoughts and, and perceptions that are radically different from other people's, and we think of them as ill, and into the study of religion where people have thoughts and perceptions which seem disconnected from the everyday world, and how we understand those, and how people sustain them. And so that's what I've been doing. So I'd like to go back maybe a little bit to what you were saying about your mom, if you're okay, because yeah. I found that really interesting. And I see that a lot with members of my family and members of my community back home where they all go to church. Like yeah. it is the regular weekly event, but the level of belief, I'm not always sure is there. We don't often have those actual discussions, but this goes into something that Chris and I have worked on with our work with improv and Chris has done a ton on, but absorption mm -hmm. and how much just like that ritual, the practice of going to a weekly mass or weekly ceremony, what that does for practice and being vividly present and for, you know, disconnection from the real world if for just an hour a week. So I started to zero in on three factors that I think shape these experiences or three factors that I know something about. One is absorption, which is often described by psychologists as an individual difference, but I think is, has um, practice-like dimensions and state-like dimensions. Another is the structure of practice, and the third is the model of mind, the way people think about their minds. Because I think that absorption is in many ways an attitude we take towards mental events. Mm. So absorption is... You know, the name that Aoki Telegan and Gilbert Atkinson gave to a scale they developed, which was initially intended to be a pen and paper measure of hypnotizability. It's 34 items. You say, you know, the, the person given the scale says true or false for me in you know, each statement. Is it true or false for me? And the statements are things like, sometimes I experience things the way I did as a child. If I want to, I can turn noise into music by the way that I listen to it. Sometimes the sound of a voice is so fascinating. So this the scale has a, a series of items, only one of which has to do with religion. So you know, I think I know what people mean by mystical experiences. And I have been struck by the fact that this scale, sort of to, to use a scientific term, predicts the experiences that I'm interested in. So I find that people who say, true to more of those items. They're more likely to say they experience God as a person, that they experience God vividly, that they have vivid inner representations, vivid images, mental images of God and God-like things. And they're more likely to say that they have had moments when they've heard God speak in a way that seems auditory. It has a hearing trace, or they've seen the wingtip of an angel. And so I'm quite intrigued by this scale. I think that it picks up our capacity to be caught up in our imagination, that to be absorbed means to allow yourself to be immersed in some activity or idea or sensation. The scale is written so that it invites people to basically say whether they like that. The people who say true to these items tend to be people who like getting caught up in their inner worlds. And it really, that absorption, really does seem to be connected 
to the domain of spiritual and supernatural experience. And it turns out that that's connected all, all around the world. Now, I should, for listeners, disclose that when I was doing my dissertation with Pentecostals and speaking in tongues and looking at stress response, it was probably the 11th hour of writing my dissertation. And I found, uh, I think it was in Spiritus. It was a... Uh, mm-hmm an article that you'd written, Tanya, on absorption and dissociation. It was one of those sort of things where it was like, damn it, why didn't I find this article <laughs> four years ago? And it, it gave me some insights into how to think about absorption and dissociation, which are used by some scholars interchangeably. And you and I have talked about that in, in sessions in the past. One of the issues I had with finding it so late is I hadn't included that scale mm-hmm. in in the research that I was doing. In 2010, you published a piece in American Anthropologist that sort of suggested a, a triangulation mm-hmm. of belief, mm-hmm. training or practice in mm-hmm. the rituals and behaviors, and a proclivity for absorption. Mm-hmm. And that's something that has stuck with me, and that is something that Karen and I have actually been using as sort of the basis for a study of improvisational comedy uh, troupe cool. and, and their dissociation or absorption in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Cool. Now, the reason I sort of give that background is that I don't always find what I expect to find with regard to the telegram absorption scale. I don't find that who I might expect based just on survey markers mm-hmm. uh, I don't find that they score particularly high on that, even though in some of our biomarker results, they may demonstrate the lower stress that we would associate with being really involved in that. And that, that big prelude is a, is a way of sort of getting at a, an issue that you mentioned, along with your co-authors, Michael Lifshitz and Mikhail Van Elk, mm-hmm. Michael mm-hmm. Van Elk. Um, it's an article from last year in Consciousness and Cognition in which you find that people who score low on the absorption scale can actually have high rates of spiritually transcendent experiences and that you may see the converse. So it sounds like I'm really curious about how we rectify low scores with high spirituality or what you think might be going on. Well, so in that work. I mean, I think we did see a, on average, a relationship with the more highly you score, the more spiritual experiences you report. But, you know, humans are complicated and various. So I I do think that some people who, you know, do not score as highly, they have cool, weird, wonderful experiences. It's just on, on average, if you look across a group of people, and now, you know, in the groups that we spoke to in that paper, and on average now, and we've done this now in multiple times in five countries, the more people say yes to the scale, the more they say yes to unusual experiences, presence of God, interaction with God. It's, it's a statistical relationship. Let me ask the question that that was a convoluted way of asking you what I really want to know, which is the role of expectations. You mentioned in the future directions, Mm -hmm. the possible importance of absorption and prior expectation, which is Mm -hmm. something that I sense is important for my own ethnographic work and and what Karen and I have done. So is there a priming that goes in that with, with expectations for absorption? Well, I think... 
When I look at something that's listed in a future direction section, I always wonder whether the co-authors are arguing amongst themselves. <laughs> so and one of the things that I think we saw, so one of us wants to interpret both the response to the absorption scale and the report of spiritual experience as a response to higher to certain kinds of expectations. And that, and this really returns to the old debate in the hypnosis research, is the response that people have to hypnosis interventions, inductions. Does that have to do with suggestibility and uh, expectation, what you want to have happen? Or does it have to do because there is a state that you can enter that changes your experience? I think that probably both can be true. That, and don't, so in other words, from one perspective, uh, you have people who are compliant. They do what you tell them to do. Now, Mikhail, I found he did this cool study with the God placebo helmet. So, you know, Michael Persinger had this mm -hmm. model that you, if you wore a God helmet, he would stimulate a point in the brain and you would have mystical experiences. Mm -hmm. Mikhail went to a folk festival, I think it was a, folk, a music festival, in, uh, I think it was in Scandinavia. And he put up a booth and he offered God helmet stimulation experiences. And he said that if you put on the helmet, you're more likely to ex you know, have an ecstatic experience. And he showed people the helmet and there were all these wires that went to the back of the computer console. And um, they happened to be taped on to the back of the computer console, but there were all these wires and people put on the helmets and it turned out that if they were higher in absorption, they were more likely to say that they'd had a wonderful experience, a mystical experience, a transformative mm. or transcendent experience. So you could interpret that as saying, well, absorption picks up people who are compliant. Mm. That absorption picks up the kind of people who, when putting on a bike helmet and told that it's really the Michael Persinger stimulation, brain stimulation, mystical experience, God spot stimulation. They'll have an experience like that. But there's another interpretation, which is that people who are higher in absorption or higher, you know, respond to hypnotic inductions or enter trance or dissociate, they enter a state, a mental state, in which their inner experience really does become more vivid and it does feel more separate from the world. And they do feel as if those, the, the deeper they get into that state, the more those inner events feel as if they're more external and more agentic. Both of those can be true. And I don't think we know yet the difference between them. And this debate's been going on for 40 years. I'm not sure we're going to solve it. 70 years. It's a long-standing debate in the field of hypnosis. But I think there is a there there to the trance state dimension. So, and this is kind of the D David Spiegel land. I think there is something about the attitude you take towards your mental world, that if you allow yourself to, you can feel more immersed in your inner and outer sensory experience. And I think that changes your sensory experience. I think there's a, a significant literature on on meditation that it's mm -hmm. that it is transformative in ways that are inexplicable without having done it but but with with some demonstrable neural correlates in a variety of different studies and i i guess my follow-up to that this is asking you to speculate and maybe going into the weeds for some of our listeners when kara does a 
podcast and we talk to someone who does human energetics, this is the experience that that I have of her is like, well, I don't even know what the words are that you're using <laughs> in that question. So my curiosity in reading this article and in listening to you now is, do you think absorption is sort of like we measure anxiety as a, both a state and a trait? And, and should we be thinking about it as something that, that could be a state, but that some people are better able to absorb and there's, they have a psychological trait for it? This is a great question and something that I don't think we have a clear answer to. So let me say, first of all, that absorption, the questionnaire, behaves like a trait. This is something I did. Gave somebody the absorption scale, trained them up, down, and sideways for a month, gave them the absorption scale again. And there's a really high, like a point date correlation between those, between the way they responded in the beginning, the way they responded at the end. That's true of the Stanford C scale for hypnotizability. You know, that 25-year gap, and there's this really high correlation between how people perform at the beginning and how they perform at the end. You could imagine a couple of different reasons why that could be true. One is that, and particularly with the Stanford C, it's more of a performance. You, you're led into a room. You're asked to raise and lower your arm to imagine a mosquitoes falling in your arm. And maybe people remember their performance. So the scale behaves like a trait measure. I am thoroughly persuaded that their absorption captures a state dimension, that what we mean by the phenomenon. So you've got this measurement, this scale that you give to somebody and they fill out. Then you've got the phenomenon that you think you're capturing with that scale. And the phenomenon, to me, I think what I hear when I hear people talk about prayer, when I hear them practicing magic, when I hear them inventing invisible others, whatever, I think that the people enter into a immersive experience where they become more deeply involved. And as they get more deeply involved, their sense of time changes, the vividness of the experience changes, and the sense of the autonomy of the imagined elements of the experience increases. So I think there is a state-like dimension to absorption and that we haven't gotten, that the scale doesn't capture that dimension, but there is something real about the intensity. I think you see that among your Pentecostals, mm -hmm. that as people get involved in the prayer, as they get involved in speaking in tongues, there's something that shifts. You know, and we know that, and I think you've written about this, I think there's a kind of way in which you speak in tongues and you could just do it because you perform it. And there's a way of speaking in tongues in which you start speaking in tongues and you feel lighter and you feel great and you feel washed by the Holy Spirit. And, it, you know, people told me that speaking in tongues would cure their cold. Mm -hmm. It's an experiential event. And I think there's something there about absorption that feels important to me, that feels true, but maybe we just haven't figured out how to capture it fully. So I would like to broaden this out a little bit. Uh, as Chris loves to get into the weeds, I want to broaden it out to see how much this might apply to people in everyday life, maybe even outside of religion. Mm -hmm. So as we talked about, we've, we've done a study with improvisers, comedy improvisers, because in many ways they go through practice and they even enter into the state that is, an, it is outside the real world. It is within an alternate reality that they are actively building together. In my own experience, I'm a power lifter. Mm -hmm. I totally will enter a state in which the real world completely falls away when I am right. lifting. And so I guess that comes to what other sorts of activities or things might people be experiencing absorption in their everyday lives? So great question. I was talking about this with my niece, Cordelia Dudney, who is an actress in Chicago. And she said that when the evening goes well, 
when she's performing well on stage, you get out there and you can see up into the last row and your senses are sharpened. You see more, you understand more, and you're more alive in the present. Well, I think there's something there. I think, so this is a domain I'm beginning to think that I need to explore more. Excellent athletes. You know, Pete Sampras apparently once said that as the ball came over the net, he could see it slowly progress towards him at 95 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. That you know, when, when uh, figure skaters, when figure skaters perform well, they talk about being in the zone. They talk about, and you, they just do it. I mean, it's Tara Lipinski weeping after she won that gold medal in 1998. And she, she said that it was exactly the way I'd imagined it. It happened. I was, it was there. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen for Michelle Kwan. There's something about the ability to enter into a state that changes time, changes focus, changes your feeling of where you are in relationship to your everyday frame. Mm-hmm. So it's Chicks and Mahaley's flow state. And, yeah. and- I would say edge and flow. How does that all mix into this, especially with, with sports in particular? I think there are a number of words that describe these phenomena. Mm -hmm. And each person is looking from a different perspective, like people who use the word dissociation. They're talking about clinical subjects. People who use the word hypnosis, they're talking about humans they bring into a classroom and they do performances with. Absorption, I'm giving people a piece of paper. Trance, anthropologists go into a church, they go into the field, and they watch people do stuff. I, of course, want to see absorption as the larger category because it is the least extreme category. So more things fit under the tent of absorption. And trance feels like something that feels more, you know, needs like a little more work and it feels a little bit more out there. So there's, it's a mystery. But I think many people would agree there's a story of focus. I am persuaded that there is something like a two-frame story. Call it the play frame, the serious play frame. There's the activity you're engaged with and there's the everyday world. So you enter a religious frame. You know, you never ask God to feed the dog. <laughs> might ask God to cure the dog. You don't ask God to feed the dog. There's a kind of an everyday stuff of the world that you do. But then there's the, you know, can you take the ice rink to be all in the, all that matters in the world for that four minute performance? Can you take your moment in church when you're praying to God to be all that matters so that God is really real for you in that moment when you're praying in tongues? Can, is, is that what really matters for you? Can you get that frame to reach, sort of somehow move out and encompass what counts as the world for you right at that moment? I think there's that something about what all these words are getting at. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned that when I brought up powerlifting and sports, that this was something you started looking into or thinking about maybe a little bit more. So is that a, a future project for you or what do you have uh, on the horizon? Well, so Mike Murphy, who's the, one of the co-founders of Esalen, recently had a conversation with me in which he said, look, you know, if you're really interested in these experiences, you've got to talk to expert athletes. And I realized that I did know these stories about athletes and they're really interesting. And one of the things that I find when I write about religion is that a certain number of people think that this is hogwash right? You know, you're writing about religion, nobody cares about religion. So like, you know, and so I think that absorption is a thing in the world. It's a 
feature of the body that can be trained and developed and changes can change people's lives for the good. Mm. And it suddenly came, sort of crossed my mind in this conversation with Mike that perhaps talking to athletes would help to make the case for the importance of the of absorption and for, you know, why wasn't the, you know, somebody held up Chick, uh, Mike Chicksomahai's book after a Super Bowl game on, on national television and said that this helped us to win this game. Mm. People believe in sports in a way that they don't necessarily believe. Not only may not they not believe in God, but they may believe that all the stuff people do in church is so much like distraction from the real business of living. They rarely feel that way about sports. Hmm. And, you know, writers get into absorbed state. Hilary Mantle, J.K. Rowling, I'm sure when they mm-hmm. enter and the, the way they talk about their writing, uh, the speed with which J.K. Rowling writes I mean, I think her characters are interacting with her. Some of my colleagues went to the Edinburgh Writers' Festival and found it something like, I wouldn't want to be held to this, but at least a quarter of the writers that they spoke to said that they heard their characters speak as if they were there in the room with them. There's something about this capacity to enter in and make this frame grow and be real, which can be super helpful for people. I was just thinking that those connections between religion and sport, but also the differences would be fascinating to study at a place like Notre Dame. Yes. Or Alabama. Religion yeah. and sport, but that's not a Catholic university. Like it's on campus. And that's it's true. You do both have football there. Jesus. We do have touchdown Jesus that where both football and religion are, you know, that is it at this campus. It'd be really interesting to see what you would find. We have totally statues cool. of, of the championship winning coaches for people to put votive offerings around. We have statement. those as well. <laughs> <laughs> as well as statues of Moses and touchdown Jesus. <laughs> All right, touchdown Jesus. Is this Jesus on the touchdown line? So it is actually a giant mural on the outside of the Hesburgh Library. However, you can see that giant mural from the stadium, and it's literally Jesus with his arms up like oh a touchdown. Goodness. That wasn't intentional to make it like a touchdown, but it's very <laughs> like That's touchdown. Hilarious. And it's even labeled that in parentheses on Google Maps now as Touchdown Jesus. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, you know, it would be a fascinating place to come and study that kind of thing. And also athletes, I think, are really superstitious. Mm. It's, you know, it's the domain of, it is a domain of human life in which performance in the moment really matters. And that is... We all believe that that's really important, but it's the athletes who've got to go out there and do it. That's why I find, so I'm a fan of the Alabama gymnastics team, but I'm like, a, I, I, I love watching like uh, gymnastics and figure skating because it's, what's so fascinating is that unlike football, you know, these are performances that all of these people have done many times. Mm. And, but it's harder to do it when you're petrified and when there are like 26 million people watching. And so what is it about some people that they can just go out and do it? Mm-hmm. But it's really hard to do, but they've done it 2,000 times. And other people, they get out there and they see all those people and they see the rings or they see, and they somehow they fall apart and you can see them do it. And it's just, I, and I find that quite fascinating. I'm going to give myself a little bit of self-promotion for a book that's not actually finished and submitted, <laughs> but I spent Christmas writing a whole chapter on Samoan football because Samoans are so religious and because we have a Samoan quarterback to a Tungavailoa and talking about flow and 
and what it must be like for a quarterback undergoing this. And then the more I learn about what they have to know and how to read the defense and all of the very, very quick and routinized behaviors that they have to have a grasp on to be able mm. to. And then we have 101,000 seats in our stadium. That's a lot of people there watching you. Yeah. And I find it amazing because I think I would be petrified. Like <laughs> a, you know, there's another, like the Jeopardy performers. That's another perform in the moment kind of activity. But we and do they, that as well as professors. We get up in front of 500 students if, in big lecture halls. And a lot of times that is a performance. It is a performance. And I have to say, I think that there is sometimes a trance state that goes along mm-hmm. with that. Really good talks, not such good talks. But I'm always, I'm always amazed by the, the sort of the, the outs we have as, as professors. Like when I'm, I'm copy editing my book now, and it's like, you know, I get to go back and make a change. And at some point I'll have to commit. But I've looked at these sentences a lot of times. And, you know, these, these kids who go out on the ice for that performance, that's when it counts doesn't matter whether they've done it. It doesn't matter whether a gymnast has performed that same routine for 2,000 times. If she mm-hmm. can't do it when the camera is on her, it doesn't count. And that's so that, it, you know, so it's like it represents something that we would all like to be good at, mm-hmm. to be able to get ourselves to that, to that ability to just be present in that moment. As a... As a classic choker, I I can say teaching college much different than every time someone would throw me the basketball as a kid, I think I'd have a shot and I'd bounce it right off my foot and it'd go out of bounds. And then later when I was coaching soccer, just really, really quick, I won't name the child, but one of my kids was the goalie who during a shootout for the championship won the game for us, like stopping the other team. But it was so stressful, he never, ever, ever wanted to play that position again. I could never (laughs) get him to go back to it. So that type of stress and anxiety is huge for people. Yes. And clearly people respond differently. And again, this is one of the ways that I think absorption and sort of these prayer-like practices, inner sense cultivation, I call them, using using your mind in order to get invested in the narrative, the way that they are can be helpful for people because it's, you know, if, if you are able to do the skill, but you freak out because you, because the, you, you respond to the stress that way, if this is stress is discomfort, discomforting rather than energizing. I mean, for some people that anticipation just makes them want to do better. Mm-hmm. They just get, they, they, they read it as excitement and it's um, and that's costly for people. You know, Tanya, I could talk to you about this like endlessly, but we have a, a fun way to wrap things up. Okay. We, we like to know about people's work-life integration. The good old days, they called it work-life balance, but that's not really a thing. So we're curious about what you do for fun, how you have work and life together in your, in your life. I garden. I really like the experience of gardening. I like my hands in the soil. I am more committed to the joy of planting than the joy of harvesting because I have many creatures in my garden and I find that they are eager to share in my bounty. (laughs) And that is a very important part of the commitment of being a California gardener. I watch figure skating. Mm -hmm. I 
not sure I'm willing to admit this, but what the heck. I, I listen to figure skating commentary to Ooh. relax me because I think it's hilarious. It's sort of, in some sense, the stakes for me are so small mm. that seeing the drama, the soap opera of the figure skating is kind of entertaining and relaxing. Do you know all the names for all the different twists and spin moves that they do? I do. It's a little oh, embarrassing. That's, no, but that's impressive because I never know what to make. Like, I can't make sense of what they're ever telling me and what they're actually doing when I, I see can't it. see it. That's the thing that's more striking. So unlike Pete Sampras, I have just not developed that ability. So, you know, when certain, certain of the, the jumps, I can mm-hmm. see them as they happen. I'm, I see more now than I used to. Some of them happen so fast yeah. that it's hard to see. Some of those gymnastics behaviors on the uneven bars, they're mm-hmm. so fast that I feel like it happens out of the awareness the range of my ability to perceive. I'm pretty active. I work out every day. I think that that's an important kind of practice. I read. Um, I don't know. I I'm love really... the immersion of, of books on tape. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Listen to them again and again. I've memorized Hillary Mantle. Kara's going to ask you what you're listening to right now. What are you listening to right now? Well, right now <laughs> I'm listening to a book that I'm re-listening to because it's smart and hard and that's other minds so i think this is Hmm. peter godfrey smith if that's correct and it's an account of the inner lies of octopi really really smart and there's a puzzle of why they've evolved to be so darn smart but they only live for two years and it invites us in a discussion about the nature of inner speech and the nature of neurons and into his kind of a description of his rich scuba diving life and a little world called Octopolis on the floor of some chunk of ocean in Aust- near Australia. And so you encounter this life form that's utterly different. The reader is actually quite good. And you know, and, and you try to think through what this should be teaching us about the nature of thought. Mm. I actually think I have that book on my bookshelf upstairs. I was looking back here to see if it was here, but I totally have an octopus book that I've been waiting to read. It's great. But I think the best, audi- the, the best book on tape, audible book I've read, have been the Hillary Mantle series. The reader is fabulous mm. and her sentences are fantastic. And as I say, I lived in that book for, for a couple of, well, I lived in Wolf Hall for a couple of years. That's cool. As you, as you probably imagine, the reason Karen and I asked this question is so we personally can get book recommendations and be validated on our personal behavior. Because I will also, I, list, I don't listen to figure skating, but I listen to podcasts about Alabama football that go so deep into scouting reports, footwork, <laughs> how the game is played and coached. Because I just, I find the elaboration of culture and all these like the levels just fascinating well i think that the world of the super fan is fascinating so it's you know i listen to these two guys who uh dave Dave leeson jonathan byer and they 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 clearly know a lot so they're Mm -hmm. investing 10 20 hours a week into this what could be seen as a meaningless activity. And then they're clearly speak to a world of people who invest even more time. Yeah. And it's fascinating that this, this becomes a kind of imagined world in which the details really matter, even though they don't. I mean, we don't really care about what 
some Russian coach might or might not have said to somebody who used to skate with her. But you know, but you create a moral universe in which you kind of I I see myself sorting out my moral understandings and my sense of justice and my sense of how a world should be, and it is quite fascinating. Yeah, I love that. That's a perfect way to summarize all of it. And it it actually connects the threads of all your work and a lot of the stuff that we study. We're not looking to justify why they exist. We're trying to understand everything below the surface. Yes. And so one of the things that anthropologists can do is they do what everybody does, but they're trained to look for the underlying anatomy, Mm. why something works the way it works. Exactly. So if somebody wants to chat with you about figure skating or absorption, for example, or, or gardening, for example, how might they get in contact with you? So I am Lerman at stanford.edu. I have a website, uh, a private website that sometimes works called Lerman.net. But Lerman at stanford.edu is the best way to get to me. My, my, the spelling of my name is a little funny, but well, we want to thank you for being on the show today. This was a fascinating interview. Really I really fun. enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. You're good interviewers. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to thank Avery McNeese for helping us with logistics today. And of course, we thank our wonderful producers for making us sound good. And we've been the Sausage of Science. Thank you all so much. You've been listening to the Sausage of Science with Chris and Kara. This podcast is sponsored by the Human Biology Association and the American Journal of Human Biology. If you like listening to us, be sure to like us, rate us, share us, and keep spreading the word. Thanks for tuning in.